Welcome everybody to ABC to CEO. I am Sharon Feeler and I have a special guest with me today, uh, Mary Ann Bruce. Mary Ann is an experienced independent director and former Fortune 100 division president and CEO. Very impressive. So welcome, Mary Ann. We appreciate you being here. Thank so you. I think what we'd like to get started with is some you became a CEO in uh, one of the division um, Fortune 100 companies. So many young girls who is our target audience, young women have trouble thinking about themselves becoming a CEO ever. So was this something that you had an aspiration to become or how did becoming a CEO actually occur for you? Becoming a CEO was not an aspiration I had when I was younger. I did have an aspiration to be a leader, and that started back in high school. I can remember I wanted to run for the student council, and I was an elite swimmer, and so I wanted to be a captain of the swimming team. So I remember focusing on leadership. Um, Career-wise, when I got my first position as an assistant manager, that was when I actually got to lead people and not just manage projects. And I realized that I had um, a desire to continue to do that and to help others grow and achieve their full potential. And so in my mind, I just wanted to keep climbing the corporate ladder. And the higher up I got, then the more I thought about the next level and the next level. And once I got to be a senior vice president, that's when it dawned on me and my aspirations started to evolve that maybe I really could aspire to be a president or a CEO. And so I did two things that I believe ultimately put me in a position to do that. First is I made sure that I had a couple of mentors who would be there for me to answer my questions, to chat with me about things I was struggling with and maybe give a different perspective. And then I also hired an executive coach who I knew could help me reveal my blind spots could help me effectively manage conflict better and could also let me see things from a bigger picture, broader horizon. I believe that those two things ultimately gave me the confidence and the belief that I could achieve becoming a CEO, which ultimately I did. Yeah, you use the word confidence. It's it's one of the traits that we oftentimes refer to at ABC to CEO for, for young women to make sure that they feel like confidence is something that they portray all the time. And it sounds like you did it both naturally because even going back to high school, but then you recognize that we all have weak points and all have areas where we could improve and by having mentors and hiring a professional coach is probably something that, you know, is a new one. I don't, I'm not sure we've ever talked about that with people before. So Yeah, I always say that throughout your career, you need three types of individuals that can help you. You need coaches, mentors, and sponsors. And the simplest way for me to distinguish between them is as follows. Coaches speak to you. They're telling you what you need. Think of like a trainer. You know, they're telling you what you need to do to get better, to get stronger, et cetera. Mentors speak with you. They're listening to you, offering advice, and sponsors speak for you. They're the ones that champion you when you're not in the room. And they're the ones that are the decision makers who decide who's going to get the promotion or not. And I like to tell young girls that at different parts of your career, you're going to need different different 
people along the way to help you. And it's probably going to be one of those three. And sometimes you can have multiple ones at the same time, because as I said, they offer different ways to help you um, achieve your own potential. So tell me a little bit more about advice you would give a young woman on how to find somebody who's a, a supporter uh, or a mentor. Uh, coaches, we probably can find by going online and, and interviewing them, but mentors and supporters, they're a little bit more difficult. So how would you advise somebody to go about finding them? Um, I'll talk about mentors first and then just briefly hit on sponsors. But I do want to say from a sponsorship perspective, you can't find them. You can't ask people to be sponsors. They have to want to do it and advocate on your behalf because they've seen you in an environment um, where you've performed extraordinarily well. And so that's why they want to champion you. So sponsors isn't something I think you can ask for. Mentors, on the other hand, I do believe you can ask for. And many young girls are afraid to do it. Um, they're afraid because of rejection. Maybe they're afraid because they don't know how to ask. And so what I tell them to do is that they shouldn't be afraid, that in my opinion, the best way to choose a mentor is to find someone that you admire, someone that you respect, somebody that does something that you would like to be able to do. They have a skill set that maybe you don't have. They have an expertise that you want to fine tune. And then it's as simple as just asking them, saying, I really admire the way you operate and the values you display. Would you be willing to meet with me on a regular basis so I can learn from you? I really feel strongly that I can learn so much. And just leave it at that. And it's been my experience, whether it's other females or men, when somebody asks you that in that way, I really haven't heard anybody say that they're not willing to do it. So it's not like you're formally saying, be my mentor. You're saying, let's have a cup of coffee on a regular basis. Let's get together for lunch. Let's have a drink. And then, you know, you're just going to talk about that relationship. But what's important is once you've established that relationship is it needs to be give and take and you need to establish a relationship of trust. I always tell um, the individuals, if you're going to be a mentor and if you're the mentee, understand each other's roles and responsibilities. Establish long-term goals and objectives be open and supportive and communicative, and then collaborate when it comes to solving problems. So, you know, I do believe in mentors, but the mentee has to take control of the relationship um, and you can't abuse it. These are people who are investing their time in you and you don't want to abuse the privilege. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And, and the sponsors, you know, we call them supporters, but it's kind of the same idea, the sponsors, I think one of the thing, advice, pieces of advice we give young women as an example of how to get noticed is when you're invited to a meeting, don't be a wallflower. Make sure you take a seat at the table if it's appropriate and usually it is and make a contribution to the meeting somehow. And that is one of the ways the people who become sponsors start to notice you. It's uh, just critical that when you're invited to a meeting, there's probably going to be somebody in this meeting who at least is at a level that can speak of you and look to you in the future for something. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you've had a great career, but I'm sure there's been some setbacks once in a while. And what lessons did you learn from any setbacks you might have had? Um, so let's talk a little bit before I talk about a setback. I have to set the stage. And I actually took a risk 
that worked out, but then later on it became a setback that ultimately also worked out. So let me kind of walk you through what I'm talking about. So the biggest risk I ever took was leaving an extremely rewarding and lucrative sales job. So I was what they were called a wholesaler in my industry. And um, I, as I said, it was very lucrative. I was very successful. I was one of the top salespeople. And because of that, I was tapped by management to see if I would be interested in starting a new division from the ground up. The reason why this was a risk was because it was less pay. I had never really owned a P&L or responsibility for an entire division. And I was nervous that you know, what would happen if I wasn't successful? And then part of me thought, well, if I was successful, I guess I could always go back to being in sales, but clearly there was no guarantee. But I took the leap of faith and decided that it was something that I wanted to do. And thankfully I thrived as a leader. I was able to quickly hire some talented individuals and together we designed and executed a strategic plan and we had incredible results. Specifically, the department that I led at that time grew sales for eight consecutive years from wow. 50 million to 3.5 billion, oh which was an average annual compound growth rate of 75%. And that was more than twice the company average. Some other data points that we looked at that described our success was we looked at our internal market share. So my department sales, when we started, had less than 3% of total sales for the company. By the end of the run, we were at 22%. And then we also looked at our external market share. When we started the division, we represented 2% of the industry. And eight years later, we were 14% of the industry. Right. So when I look back and I try to think of why was I successful and the team was successful, from my perspective, it was a belief in myself and my instincts, confidence, to your point, that C word again, confidence in my capabilities, but more importantly, we had a strong support network in my family, in my teammates, in my colleagues, and my friends. And I had to develop the courage to listen to my own voice because I realized if I didn't listen to my own voice, who would? Mm -hmm. so over the years, I learned to trust my own personal strength and my power. So that was a risk that I took that was very successful. So let me talk a little bit about the set setback and then what happened after that. So as I just mentioned, we had this department, I was leading it for eight years, we were doing really well. Well, after eight or nine years, I became restless. I started thinking that I wanted something else to do. And upon reflection, I realized what I really loved to do was to start and grow and scale businesses, but I didn't really like maintaining them. It's once you go from 50 to 3.5 billion, it's not as excited as going from 3.5 to 4.5. Don't get me wrong, to be able to oversee a size and scope of a division that big is rewarding, but for me, it wasn't as exciting. I wasn't happy about going to work every day. It seemed more a little bit of boredom. So I spoke with the CEO of the firm and said I was interested in doing other things. And they're like, oh, okay, you know, we'll take it under advisement. And lo and behold, about six months later, because our department was so successful, the CEO decided they were going to start another department, break, break it off. It was going to be a separate and distinct channel. And so I thought, wow, this is great. I could do this all over again. But instead of focusing on banks, now I'll focus on wirehouses. So I put my hat in the ring. I enthusiastically applied for the job. 
I spoke to everybody about why I thought I was the best person for the job. And lo and behold, I was passed over. So needless to say, I was very, very disappointed. Um, after I got over the shock, I went back to the CEO and I said, you know what? I didn't get what this opportunity, which is what I really wanted. Help me understand why. Help me understand what I could have done differently. You know, what are the skills that I need to work on because I don't want to be disappointed again. And to my surprise, the CEO told me I did absolutely nothing wrong, that I had all the right qualities. I had been proven entity, um, that everything was wonderful, but there was just one catch because now my department was so important to the firm's success. Mm -hmm. They were afraid to let me take on a new opportunity because that meant their business that I was running could potentially falter. And it was gonna take a long time for the new business to get up to the level of the business I was running. And they basically told me I had a fabulous job. I was making a lot of money. Everybody loved me, keep doing what I was doing. Oh, and so I did that for a little bit, but I was still restless. And so finally I decided that as much as I loved that company, it was time for me to do something else. And ultimately I was offered an opportunity from a Fortune 100 firm to be a president and CEO and run a relatively new division for them. So the lesson learned for me, and it was a hard lesson, is sometimes companies' expectations of what they want for you and your expectations don't match. And don't settle. Believe in yourself and recognize that you have to do what makes you happy. And so those were kind of the, the success that led to a disappointment that led to success. Right. Yeah, I and I remember being, you know, as one of the groups that worked for me, I had somebody who also really wanted to do something different. And she was excellent at what she did. And it was the idea of losing her in this role, it was devastating. But the path we took is when we find somebody that you can train, that you could walk away, that you can do succession planning with, then let's talk about it. And, you know, it took like two years, though, because she had just excelled so much, kind of like what you're talking about. It's not easy to replace somebody when, when you've got that kind of success behind you. I agree with you, Sharon, but look at what ultimately happened. They lost me anyway. And that's, that's what I tried to say to the CEO. I didn't just walk out the door. I came back yeah. for a second time and I said, look, you don't understand. I'm bored. If you don't do something with me here, I'm going to find it elsewhere. You're going to lose me as a leader anyway. So wouldn't you rather have me be happy here? And that was my baby. Don't you think I'm going to oversee it and make sure that things stay well? It's a reflection on me if it doesn't do well. Right. But they just yeah. had a different idea of what they wanted than I did. Yeah, great lesson for senior leaders, though, making those decisions. So have you ever second-guessed your career choices? You know, I try not to look back um, and second guess, but if I had to say there were a couple of times where I thought maybe I stayed too long in a position um, or maybe I didn't pick companies that were aligned perfectly with my own personal values and goals and aspirations. So I would say I don't really second guess, but maybe I could have moved around more quickly, or maybe I could have taken more risks. The challenge that you have when you're successful, 
um, you get caught up in that, oh, this is great and it's trying to do better and better and better without taking a step back and saying, is there something else that you want to do? Right. But I really try not to look back. I try, I try to look forward. Well, that's it's good. So you've obviously worked with a lot of women throughout your career. Do you see some pitfalls that maybe women take in, in the past of their career that could keep them from becoming CEO or things they do that make it easier for them to become a CEO today? Because what we're trying to make women understand is that they too can be a CEO. So what's your experience with women in this area? So you touched on it earlier, and that is, Sharon, that is that if you really want to be a CEO, at some point in your career, you have to have P&L responsibility. You need profit and loss experience. Profit and loss experience can happen because you run a department, you run a division, you run a whole company, but it ultimately means the buck stops with you. You are going to be responsible for whether or not that division or department is successful. Does it make money? Does it lose money? And P&L responsibility helps you really dig deep and understand all the components of what goes into making a product or a company or a service successful. And so that's the number one thing that I believe women need to do if they aspire to be in the C-suite, particularly the CEO. And unfortunately, many young women don't realize how important that is, or maybe they're just afraid to ultimately be responsible for the profits and the loss of the organization or the successes and the failures. But that's the most important thing they need to do, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I, and I would agree. That was a huge mistake I made in my career. And to kind of also interact or to look with some of the other things you're saying, I, did, I realized at some point that I was missing this. But I had gotten to a level where I loved my job. I loved what I did. I was getting promoted. And if I was going to go back in that P&L route, I would have had to go down a few levels and change my career choice. And sometimes if you've made a mistake, sometimes you need to kind of take that, that risk of going down in kind of responsibility or at least across if, if you're lucky enough. And in order to get that P&L responsibility, because if you get stuck in a staff role and you're there too long, it's really hard to reverse that course. I absolutely agree, Sharon. And that's why, if you recall, when I gave my example of success, I was moving into management and leadership, but it was I was taking a pay cut. You know, yeah. not a lot of people are willing to make those changes, particularly if you're the breadwinner of the family. So these are not easy choices by any stretch of the imagination. And being a CEO is not an easy choice. But if it is something that you aspire to become, it is very important that you get P&L experience, even if it's just for a short period of time. And that's where sometimes sponsors can come into play and can help you because you know they could speak on your behalf. Maybe you wouldn't have been considered for a position, but they can speak on your behalf and say, you know, this is maybe a curve in their career, or as you said, maybe a step backwards to get a step ahead, but I believe in them and their abilities, and they need to have this to round out their skill set. Right, right. And, you know, you bring up being a CEO is not easy. It, it really becomes a lifestyle choice. So what about work-life balance? I mean, what do you think about many individuals today are asking the question, how do you get work-life balance when you've got such a demanding career? So what's your reaction to that? 
Well, let me start off by saying I personally do not like the phrase work-life balance. I believe it implies that your career and your life are two separate and distinct aspects of your life competing for your time. Rather, I prescribe to the Confucius theory, which says, choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Because if you're truly passionate about your work and you love what you do, then they're not competing priorities. They're intricately interconnected. So I like to refer to it instead of work-life balance, I refer to it as work-life integration. Oh. Now that said, throughout my career, as I'm sure it was the same with you, there are times where you could feel overwhelmed or stressed, the demands of an executive job. I was traveling 150 days a year. I was always on the road. Trying to balance that with a happy family life and children is hard. I'm not going to say it's not. And so I developed a couple of mechanisms that I use to help me cope. First and foremost, I learned how to rely heavily on my support network, my husband, my nanny, my extended family, my friends. They helped me participate in school and other, they participated, I should say, in school and other activities when I was at work and I couldn't be there. I became a master organizer and delegator. I outsourced all the time consuming household chores. To this day, I have friends who have said to me, I cannot believe for almost 20 years you never walked into a grocery store. I never walked into a grocery store. I never walked into a bank. I never walked into a dry cleaner. My attitude was I could pay someone 10 or $15 an hour to do that. I was paid significantly more than that. My time was limited and I wanted to spend my limited time with my family and my husband and my children. So I just outsourced all of that. I also made sure that I built time into my schedule. I told my secretary at least one hour of every day I needed to have as unscheduled. That was time that I was going to use for myself to think, or maybe to just get out and walk the halls and touch my employees and see what they were up to. I also made sure that I at least scheduled time for date night with my spouse once a week or going to my daughter's soccer games or my son's track meets. I physically put it in the calendar. And once it was in the calendar, she knew that she couldn't take it out of the calendar unless she asked. And that was going to have to be something really important for me to take that off the calendar. I also took time to relax. I protected my weekends. Now, I will admit that this was before email and stuff became so prevalent, um, so I'm probably dating myself, but I made sure that when I left work on Friday, now I might not leave till midnight, but when I left work on Friday and until I returned on Monday morning, I didn't want to be disturbed. It needed to be an emergency for somebody to contact me. Otherwise, they had to contact me Monday morning. I turned my voicemail off. I really was not interested in speaking with someone on the weekend. That was my home time. I also took frequent vacations because I knew I needed to recharge my batteries. So I did that one of two ways. I would take long weekends, like either a Friday and a Monday. I'd probably take a long weekend once a month, once every other month. And I always took a two-week vacation. And I prided myself on being away from the office. You know, nowadays people call it, the, um, companies call it as PTO, and that stands for paid time off. And they give you a bank and you can do whatever you want. Most people didn't take their time. Most people have vacations piled up. I always took it. And I always told my staff not to think of it as paid time, to think of it as paid time off and not pretend time off. So many people go on vacation and they pretend they're on vacation because they're checking their email or they're checking their voicemail or they're calling their colleagues or somebody that worked for them. That's not taking time off. 
you need time to recharge your batteries. And so I made sure that I did that. Um, I also set some guidelines for being home. As I mentioned earlier, I traveled a lot. I was on the road 150 days a year. When I took the job as president of Evergreen Investment Services, I spoke with the CEO and I said, look, he was a guy. I said, you're not going to maybe understand this, but I have children and I have a life outside of this job. And I am committed 24 by seven. I said, but I will not be away from my children more than seven days in a row. And if I have to be away for work more than seven days in a row, I'm flying my husband and my kids to see me and you're paying for it. And he agreed. And there were probably two or three times in my career where I had to do things overseas. And I did. I flew, flew my kids and my husband. And sometimes I flew my mother or my nanny as well to make sure that you know we could enjoy time together. And then I would say, lastly, I exercised a lot. You know, I, I recognized the value of exercise. I love to play tennis, um, but you can't really do that all the time. So what I would do is I would walk the halls or I would walk the stairs. So if you have meetings, you can go up and down the stairs instead of using the elevator. And that would be how I could at least get some exercise during the course of the day. And so um, I also used to tell myself to remember to be kind to yourself. You don't have to try to be superwomen and live up to other people's expectations of what's normal or ideal. You just have to do what's right for you. So the bottom line is I realized that you can have it all, just not all at once. And at different points in your career and your life, you can have different priorities and that's okay. And so that's why I like to refer to it as work-life integration and not work-life balance because balance makes it seem like everything is even. It's not ever even. Right. Well, and it sounds like you took control of the situation. You, uh, you, you said, this is how I'm going to do it. You had a plan. And I think also maybe known to you, but maybe not unbeknownst, you set a, a model for your employees to follow, which is so critical because too many CEOs do want to work unbelievable hours and, and people are afraid to take time off. But when they have a boss who does the integration like you're talking about, it allows other employees to be able to do the same thing. So kudos to you for setting such a great example because it, it makes a difference, but yet you didn't give up responsibility of your job. You still had it all there. You just were able to manage it differently. Absolutely, yeah. I would work like a dog between Monday and Friday and then I'd breathe on the weekends. In fact, um, a model that my dad taught me early on was if I was willing to work like no one would, I could live like no one could. I did, <laughs> he always made me realize you don't have to be the smartest you know, tool in the shed or the sharpest pack in the box. Somebody's always going to be smarter than you, but you can outwork or you could out hustle anybody. And I grew up with that mindset. And so I gave it my all 24 by seven, but it was just those five days a week <laughs> and not on the weekends and not when I was on vacation. So you obviously were very successful, but how would you define and measure success kind of in, in your words? How do you do that? Um, I would define, let's just say I define success differently today than I used to. Um, in the old days, I def exclusively defined success by my career accomplishments, as well as the size of my paycheck. And it took me a long time to realize that who I am is not exclusively what I do. So today I take a much more holistic view of success. And by that, I mean, I view success as multifaceting 
facetted and um, it's integrating the achievements in all aspects of my life. So from a personal perspective, I make sure that I invest in my own health and my well-being and well-being. From a professional perspective, I make sure that I'm ensuring business growth and that I want to have some type of industry impact. From a community perspective, I believe in giving back and trying to help the local communities where I live build better communities. And then from a family and friends perspective, I want to make sure that I leave time for those that I love. So where initially in my career, I defined myself exclusively as what I did, I came to realize that what I did was only a small portion of my life. In addition to being a good executive, I'm an effective executive, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend. All those things are really important if you want to live a healthy and, and enjoyable life. Because at the end of the day, to me, you can only guarantee a life of meaning if you live it and share it with others. Oh, what a great advice. You know, I know you work with a lot of young women and women groups. Uh, so what advice do you have for them as they embark on their careers? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the girls and women's groups you work with. Um, well, I'm involved with many different girls and women's groups. So um, right now I chair a nonprofit called Wrestle Like a Girl. It was founded from, the CEO is Sally Roberts. She is a combat veteran and a two times world bronze medalist. And after she finished her athletic career, she recognized that there weren't a lot of opportunities for young girls to wrestle. In many cases, they had to wrestle against boys, which is not fair because they're physically not as capable given the size and strength, et cetera. So she went on this quest to found the company and her Primary goal is to access, to provide access and opportunities for girls to wrestle. And their mission is to use the sport of wrestling to help girls become leaders in life. And so I'm active in that. Um, I've really been enjoying it. I'm not a wrestler. I think I mentioned earlier that um, I was an elite swimmer, but it's just a way to help girls realize that they can have strength and power and commitment and be resilient. And so that's one of the ways I give back. I'm also involved. What a way to gain confidence. Yes, yes. And then I'm also involved with a group called C200. And we try to help the next generation of women become C-suite executives. And we also have, um, our group is both entrepreneurs as well as corporate. I'm involved with a group called Paradigm for Parity, which is trying to make sure that women are treated equally and that they could aspire to advance to the highest levels in um, corporate America, as well as in the boardroom. Um, I'm involved with International Women's Forum. In fact, that's how I met Sally. Uh, they had a program that they did with EY, trying to sponsor athletes to help them move into business coming from the athletic world and making that transition. And they had mentors that volunteered to help some of these athletes. And so I had volunteered to help Sally. And after working with her for a year and a half, she said to me, I've learned more from you than I have. And I would love for you to be the chair of my board. And I was like, I didn't even realize she had a board. And then I was like, well, who's the current chair and how are they going to like it if you want me to come in and be the chair? And she said, oh, I can make it all work. And to her credit, she did. And wow. so I'm the chair of the board as well. So, so yes, I'm very passionate about helping young women and women in general achieve success, both in their career, in the boardroom, and in life. In terms of advice, 
my biggest piece of advice was, you know, find a mentor. And then after you've excelled, be a mentor, give back to women. I'd say the second piece of advice is that you need to be open to opportunities. One of my favorite saying is I plan and God laughs. Life doesn't happen according to your plans. And I'm a perfect example of that. So I encourage people to be flexible and open to new possibilities wherever and whenever they appear. And more importantly, to live in the moment. Because if you're constantly planning for the future, you're not really enjoying the success that you're having currently. Um, and then the other thing I would say is learn from your mistakes. Tough times don't last, tough people do. You have to understand that bad things happen to good people, but if you're aware and accept adversity as being inevitable, you can find a way to embrace those challenges and learn from that, those difficult experiences. So I like to say mistakes are marvelous, but only if you learn from them. So adversity is not a bad thing. Failure is not a bad thing, particularly if you figured out what you did wrong and what you would do differently and then not repeat it again. Right. Great advice. Great advice. I like to always tell people, too, that this, too, shall pass when you're in the middle of a bad situation. We will get through this and then we'll look back on it and hopefully have learned something, as you're saying here. But uh and then another one will come in inevitably again. But yes. we, yeah, that was one of my mom's favorite sayings. This too shall pass. <laughs> Her <laughs> other one was, if it was meant to be, it's meant to be. <laughs> I, I love that. So Beth, is there something else you think we should talk about? Well, I first of all, um, I want to ask one question. What would you say leadership looks like today? One of the things we really try to help young women understand is what does leadership look like in your mind? Some of the things that young women wouldn't know. And what does it look like today at the end of 2020? How's it sure. different? I definitely agree that leadership today is different from the past. To me, the biggest difference between leadership today versus the past is that it's less hierarchical, it's more collaborative, and it's more inclusive. So let me elaborate. When I started my career journey, it was not uncommon for people to look at leadership and they look at the military. And so that hard-nosed, top-down leader who maintained a total control philosophy based on a singular-minded game plan is no longer the case. So collaboration, teamwork, empowerment, inclusiveness, they're taking on heightened awareness and importance particularly today as companies begin to break down silos and remove layers of management. I'm a big believer that effective and successful leaders focus on teams. And I like to think of the acronym as team standing for together. Everyone achieves more. Oh, I love Individual that. contributions are important, but study after study shows that a group is going to come up with much better decisions than individuals. So I strongly believe in teams and leaders empower those employees by providing them with the freedom to take responsibilities for their ideas, their decisions, and their actions. And then this year, in particular, you can't really think of leadership without thinking of diversity and inclusion. And some young women believe that those two terms are interchangeable. I do not. I believe they're completely different. Diversity is about the mix of people on a team. Diverse teams are made up of individuals that have different perspectives. They can have different perspectives due to their age, due to their gender, due to their sexual orientation, due to their education, due to their nationality, due to their ethnicity, due to their religion. You name it, that's what diversity means. Differences of opinions. 
and differences of thought, diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of experience. And then those individuals bring those differences to help problem solve. Inclusion, on the other hand, is all about the mix, not just the mix of people on the team, but how does that team click? How does that team work? It's about creating a culture where everyone feels like they belong, that their individual voices are heard, that they're acknowledged, and that they don't have to conform to others' ideas or opinions for their ideas to be valued. So today's leaders, I believe, recognize that diversity and inclusive, that a diverse and an inclusive workforce is critical to the success of the company. Study after study after study has shown that diverse teams are more productive, they're more innovative, they're more committed to the company, and they're more satisfied with their jobs. And insightful leaders find a way to leverage that diversity and take advantage of it so that together they can come up with different ways to solve problems and make better decisions. So leadership has evolved like everything else. Um, and I'm just a firm believer that teamwork, collaboration, inclusiveness is what really propels insightful and successful leaders. I love that. And I've always been of the opinion, the best leaders are the ones where people follow naturally because they know that you as a leader are concerned about them and everything around you. So they're not following because they have to, they're following because they want to. I would wholeheartedly agree. Yes. So this has been a very interesting, insightful 30 minutes. And uh, I can't tell you, Marianne, how much your words of wisdom are gonna go so far for our ABC to CEO website. You, you've made so many uh, quotes here that I can't wait for us to kind of pull together and be able to share with others as in, in its entirety and in, in small little bites here because they're, they're quite meaningful. And I thank you for the time you've put into thinking about this. It comes natural to you, I know, but um, Beth and I really appreciate what effort you put into making uh, this, what I consider to be a very successful 30 minutes here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love giving back and I particularly love helping women because they haven't had as many role models as maybe their male colleagues have had. I would agree. And I am a true believer in, we are making a difference. I, uh, I, you know, somebody said to me once, well, you've got a site where ABC to CEO, does that mean you've got to wait 20 years until you find out this is successful? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no, because every day we make a difference. Mm -hmm.